Hello there, my name is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia with a message for all those that are hungry and thirsty for reality, which have not quenched their thirst for reality with the delusion of temporal baits in this world, but desire what truly satisfies the inner core of their being, which is only found in what is ultimately real. So those that are thirsty, you've come to the right place. This message, the first part of what I'm sharing here, and everything I'm sharing here, I should mention I do not prepare anything. There's a bit I put together, but that's about it. But everything is just being shared here from my heart. And it is a message, first of all, to everyone throughout the world from whatever your background is. This message is the greatest reason for which everything consists and exists and for which you are alive. It is the very purpose behind all there is. What is that message? It is an ultimate manifestation and perfection of love that is the very source of love. And love is the highest quality of life, the highest form of existence. Only in love is there the ultimate experience of pleasure. Only in love is there that quality of life that can be totally creative against what is contrary to life that is corrupting, that is hell-contagious, that is destructive. And I want to share with you the good news about this. There is one true God, one true eternal God, and He is, or God is, if you're concerned about using male or female, God is that ultimate source and perfection of love. And so I want to describe to you this love. First of all, this love is so pure, it will not tolerate the slightest that is contrary to love. So you might be asking, well, what do you mean exactly? What is love? Well, I'm talking about the highest and most pure form of love. For example, in the Bible, in the Greek language, the highest form of love is agape, and then there's philia, which is the love of feeling, and then there's eros, which is the sexual love. Agape, this agape love is a quality that always chooses the highest lasting good over any lesser choice. Any lesser choice as such would obviously have a measure of corruption in it. This love always freely, innately chooses the highest lasting good. It is so integrous and pure that, as it were, it is a blazing fire of judgment against all that is contrary to love, this love, which is who God is. It is the first aspect of this love which is symbolized in the negative symbol in nature. We have negative and positive symbols in math and electronics. 
and all of nature consists of negatives and positives, and the negative symbol represents an indestructible foundation. Only this quality can go against corruption. And also the second law of thermodynamics. And so this first aspect of love is represented in the negative symbol, and the second aspect I will explain also is represented in the positive symbol. But this negative symbol represents that quality that only can be entrusted with unlimited authority, life, and power without being corrupted by it or using it in a corrupt way. It is the very opposite of corruption. It is the destroyer of corruption. Only such love can be entrusted. And when you consider the two laws of science that is observed in the universe, the law of thermodynamics, the first law basically indicating that since matter just changes and always exists, indicates that there's no beginning. Oh yeah, you can say you believe in the Big Bang, but that's been pretty well decimated with the discovery of uh, the universe recently by the James Webb Space Telescope, which is a thousand times. Pardon me, what is it? A hundred times more powerful than the Hubble Space Telescope. And it reveals what some of the top experts that were proponents of the Big Bang no longer believe in the Big Bang because of what they've seen. So, if there's no beginning, and there's this second law of thermodynamics, which basically says everything left on its own goes in the direction of disorder. Yes, I know if you want to be more scientific, you can define it more in detail, but it's still basically an observed truth, which is basically what the second law of therm thermodynamics is. And so this means that we should have come to complete chaos in the infinite past since there's no beginning. Yet here we are in a highly organized, highly designed universe. You only have to look at what's inside our human cells. You can look at all kinds of YouTube videos on the internet showing these amazing machines inside our cells that are so sophisticated that they're more sophisticated by far than a spaceship that one would create that could travel to the moon and land on it and then reproduce itself there and travel to other planets and keep reproducing throughout the universe. It's way more sophisticated than any AI technology could possibly be, and yet that's in a little cell so small that you can't even see the cell. And in that cell, there's an enormous city that is equivalent to what would be a 20-diameter city with all kinds of machinery, all kinds of it functioning doing amazing things, little things that look like almost like a little robot or human beings walking on tracks with two arms and two legs walking along these tracks, which is equivalent according to what one program I saw and as far as the speed they're going on those tracks to 2,000 miles an hour. And they're carrying these packages with exact addresses to take to certain places 
with to to supply certain parts to some part in your body that's needed exactly tailored to go to the exact place a highly designed and sophisticated creation and I'm not going to go into all the evidence against the theory of evolution, but it is decimated in almost every field of science these days, if not every field. Every field I know of, the evidence is overwhelming for creation and for design. But what I'm here to share with you is about this love. Because it is the very meaning and purpose for which all things exist. And what is that purpose? Well, I'm going to unfolded here as I continue to explain this. Because the other aspect of this love, I've just shared the perfection of this love, but the ultimate expression of the perfection of this love is that this love is so great that yes, the creator of such a vast universe, and need I describe how vast it is? My, I maybe should interject a bit here and mention the speed of light travels around the world seven times in one second and yet it takes four light years to get to the closest sun like our sun and then there are many many stars like our sun that are the size of our sun and many that are far far bigger and our sun is a thousand times bigger than the earth and in this one galaxy here that we are in the milky way there is between 200 billion and 400 billion stars way more than the population of the Earth. And there are billions of galaxies. And they say from just the stuff they can see, they can't see the end of it, from the James Webb Space Telescope and the Hubble, that there's enough stars that for every grain of sand, there should be a thousand more stars. There's enough stars that every of the eight billion people on Earth, each person gets to have between, I forget if it's, 18 trillion or 80 trillion stars of just the ones they can see from these powerful telescopes. This universe is beyond comprehension, vast and enormous. Now scientists are saying because the Big Bang is so decimated from what they've discovered through this James Webb Space Telescope that they believe the universe is infinite, some of them. There's no beginning, no end. Well, you know, if you believe in this pseudoscience or this theory hypothetically of evolution, then given an infinite past, if you apply survival of the fittest to an infinite past, you should have in some other dimension already had an ultimate being evolve that would be so great that it would have power over all the powers of the universe of time and chance and so on, so that it would have swallowed up the need for evolution to exist in the first place, so that it always would have been. In fact, order is always more powerful than disorder and always overcomes disorder, just like light overcomes darkness. So this would indicate that order would have always been without a beacon. And surely that order would not be the creation, but the creator. The one true eternal God. And this God is so great. He's not got some 
puny limitations like man would perceive him to have. Oh, God is not great enough to become a human being and communicate with man. Do you think he can't communicate with his creation and come down in human form and communicate with his creation? Come on, he can. And he has. You only have to look at the account in Genesis 18, where you have three men standing before the tent door of Abraham in the heat of the day while he's at the door of his tent. And he runs before them and bows before them, and they probably look far more majestic than normal human beings, and asks them if he can get his servant to make a wonderful meal for them, in essence. That's what he says. And so they have this meal, and he addresses one of those angels as Yahweh, which is the most sacred name for God in the original Hebrew language of the Old Testament, which basically means the ultimate I am that I am, the ultimate reality separate above and beyond creation. And he's addressing this one as Yahweh. And then the two other angels that are with him are sent forward to go to Sodom and Gomorrah, which was destroyed by fire coming from God from heaven because of the wickedness of what was going on in those cities. And Yahweh ascended up to heaven from Abraham. This is Jesus Christ who came and communicated way back then. And of course, we have the account of Jesus Christ, the historical account of Jesus Christ who rose from the dead, who was crucified on the cross for our sins. Four lawyers have set out to try to disprove the resurrection of, in, in the, by writing books and in the process were converted. For example, Lee Strobel is one of the ones recently. A news reporter was upset his wife was converted and Look, it happened. He found, he found the evidence overwhelming. All the prophecies that were fulfilled, every detail of his death, by prophecies up to a thou, over a thousand years before he came. Other prophecies, 700 years, 500 years, so on before he came. God is so great that he can communicate with his creation and that positive aspect of this love is that God is so great that he can take judgment upon himself and absorb it upon the behalf of such creatures as ourselves. Without being corrupted by absorbing that judgment. Which was evident in the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. It's interesting that the symbol of the cross, which is the positive symbol as well, is the last letter of the most ancient languages, such as the Phoenician language, the Hebrew language way back in the Mideast, back 1500 BC, all the way through to 2000 BC. Way back then, the last letter, just like the cross that we draw today as Christians. And that last letter meant a sign or symbol. Because back then, that was the way they drew their letters. They drew them as symbols. 
It represents crossing out the judgment that was against us. You see, this message is not a message that's just been from the time of Christ. It's from the very time of Adam and Eve that this message has been proclaimed, and it is this, that there's only one God. And this one God is so great that he has the power to forgive our sins. And the reason is because without violating the integrity of his love that will not tolerate what is contrary to love, His love is so great that he could absorb judgment upon himself on our behalf so that we be, could be forgiven. And so that is what happened when Jesus Christ came. He became a perfect atoning substitutionary sacrifice. He humbled himself more than us, mere creatures. He suffered more than you, a mere creature humbled himself more than you, a mere creature, God, so that you could choose to repent and ask God for forgiveness and be reconciled to God, be brought back into fellowship with God. There is no love that can be imagined that is greater than this love or that could exist that is greater than this love. Only this love could be entrusted with unlimited power life and authority without being corrupted by it all, or using it in a corrupt way, thus indicating that he is the very source of love from which issues all creation and life. So this message has always been, in fact, even before the world was created, this message was there. And it was a reality, not just a capacity on God, that he came and suffered on the cross and rose from the dead. That was a reality that was even before the world was created in God, not just a capacity. In fact, in the Bible it says in the New Testament that Jesus Christ was slain before the foundation of the world, which means he was slain before the world was created, because God is beyond time. And for those of you that believe, the Christians believe in three gods. Genuine Christians do not believe in three gods. Here's how to, here's the right understanding. For God to be almighty, he must rule in the three ultimate aspects of existence, which are beyond creation, in creation, and filling all creation. As God, the Father, which means originator, he is beyond time and space, beyond creation, knowing and seeing the end from the beginning, and every little single atom and molecule and where it will be before it ever was so in time. God the Father. And to be ruling in that aspect of existence, he must be in personage, in and over it. To be ruling in the creation realm, he must be in personage, to rule in it and over it, in conscious intelligence. If he wasn't, he wouldn't be ruling in it or over it. And so, 
the Son. The word Son means expression, and Jesus Christ is the one and only full expression of the quality of the being of God's love into the creation realm to experience it, to communicate with his creation, and to do what he did on the cross in order for us to be reconciled to God. And the third aspect is omnipresence, God's spirit in person, each filling all existence attached to every particle of existence that he created, able to raise the dead in a moment. And so, only in this way could God be almighty if he could be in three personages. And also, he could only be almighty if he had, only if he had this ultimate perfection of love in the two aspects I've described, the negative and the positive aspect. There's no message that is greater than this message. There's no news that is more hopeful and liberating from hopelessness and despair than this message. And it is the reason for which all things exist. And you can choose to be reconciled to God and to receive his forgiveness by just calling from the depths of your being and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Cleanse me of all my sin. Forgive me of all my sin through your blood that was shed on the cross and your body that was broken unto death. Become the central treasure of my life. I choose to make you the central treasure of my life, to make you my Lord and Savior. And he will come into your life. And you will know that it is real. For Christ himself said, Whoever believes with their life into me, out of their innermost being would flow rivers of living water. You know, the truth can be likened to a diamond glass without cracks that is able to hold water without it dissipating or leaking as opposed to a broken cistern from which all the water drains. And our lives are like broken cisterns. When we are grasping after the temporal baits of this world that can be used by people and powers over those people of darkness to manipulate your lives, because that's where your focus is, that's where your heart is. And the Word of God says, Wherever your heart is, there is your treasure. So when those things crumble, you crumble with it because that's where you put your life and your focus and your energy instead of in those things that are eternal and everlasting. Now, I've written a book that's titled Afterlife Incredible, Irrefutable. Here it is. You can purchase it on Amazon. It's a large six by nine paperback of 368 pages. And I show the scientific evidence for life after death from many fields of science, but especially sharing many amazing stories of people highly verified to have been dead by medical equipment and doctors. And what they experienced when they died in a dimension that is far greater than the physical dimension. Do you know that particle physics, mathematical analysis of all the particle explosions that have been going on with the Large Hadron Collider, a $16 billion project in Geneva, Switzerland. That all those particle collisions that are 
continually being analyzed by mainframe computers around the world. The mathematics shows the other dimensions are far superior to the physical and point to a superintelligent source so that even secular scientists have been concluding that the universe is more like the projection of a large thought source uh, coming from a superintelligence, a force, because all the particles that we're made of, 99.49%, it's 99.9999% is empty space. But in that little teeny per fraction, subfraction of a percentage where there is existence, there is the physical dimension, the fourth, the tenth, the fourth all the way up to the tenth, and all those ones above the third dimension, which we are in, are far superior. And so the people that are in heaven that have died and experienced this while they've been dead, they describe how much more real it is. They compare this dimension to like being 2D, 2D paper compared to three being in 3D like we're in. That's how much greater it is, how much more real it is. And many people have died and experienced going to heaven. And they've experienced this love being in that so, so, so great, so intense, as Dean Braxton, for example, Dean B, and his last name, B-R-A-X-T-O-N. Just type in N-D-E, standing for near-death experiences, and Dean Braxton, look him up, for example. When he was standing before Jesus Christ, and the same was true of Dale Balak and others, the love was so intense that there's no way they could put it in earthly language. It was so great. It was so pleasurable. Way beyond any physical pleasure such as sexual pleasure. This was a love straight from God to them. And they knew that God loved them so much that if he only created them, he would have humbled himself more than them and suffered more than them so they could choose to receive his forgiveness and be brought back into a restored love relationship with God. So this is the good news that I want to share with the world, that you can choose to receive his love. Why would you reject such love? Why would you fail? Why would you choose to believe in hopelessness and, of, and in things that are just lies? This is reality, what I'm sharing with you. It's not religion. It's a relationship with the living God of love, of the fact that you can repent and begin to live a new life that is liberated from obsession with temporal things that never satisfy the inner core of your being and can be used by evil powers to manipulate your life. I'm not going to go on sharing. I could go on sharing a lot more. I'm here to share with those that have come to the saving knowledge of God through Jesus Christ. To particularly those that are gathered in assembly around Jesus Christ, especially throughout Canada where I am and throughout the United States but also around the world a message. And so the word of God says in 1 Peter 4.11, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. And that is what I will seek to do in this message, is to allow God by his spirit to speak through me, which is why I do not prepare much 
for sharing these messages. I just copy and paste some scriptures. So what I do to enhance this is I cast a lot with an application such as Random Bibleizer and others to get two chapters. I cast lots. I do it with great reverence before God, separating those applications from all defilement through prayer and applying the blood of Jesus Christ to them. I separate them and then I pray for the casting of the lot to get those two chapters. And then I find the common theme in those two chapters that bears witness with each other. And then I meditate on those two chapters for in half an hour and then I share. So I'm going to be sharing today what I received throughout the week because I only do one video message a week. And what I got today as well. And I don't know what I'm going to share. But I know that God will help me to share. Now there's another scripture that explains this in even greater understanding. And that is Revelations 19.10 says, Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. When we worship God in spirit and in truth, out of a pure heart, in great humility before God, and in great love, we are filled with a spirit and an overflow beyond ourselves that can result in creative utterances that are beyond ourselves coming from the Spirit of God. And so when it says, worship God for the testimony of Jesus, the spirit of prophecy, what it's saying is that when we truly worship God, that then there can flow utterances that come from the spirit of God out of us that testify to the reality of God, of Jesus Christ, that he is God manifest in the flesh, that conquered corruption in the flesh, and rose from the dead. And so this is a wonderful message I'm sharing with you. And so I want to share with you the two chapters I the chapters I received this week. And also I do cast lots sometimes to get a song. In this case I did cast lot and I have 150 songs on my website at ultimatemeaning.com. Oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you about my website at ultimatemeaning.com. That is for those that are new. There is there some <clears throat> a flip book that I've done, which has very um, good writing, original writing by me with much of the print highlighted in red, and all of those are links to YouTube videos going to the exact location in the videos, showing from many fields in science of science and archaeology the reality of what I'm sharing here, that it is confirmed. It, lots of evidence against evolution, evidence showing the discovery of the crossing of the Red Sea by the children of Israel, of Mount Sinai, all of that has been discovered. The chariots buried under the water are all there to be see for yourself on YouTube and many other things that are there. And I also have some really good videos, especially the one I did recently where it's titled on YouTube, David Thompson, 
rebuts atheist Christopher Hitchens. So you check all of that out. So now I want to go to the song I received by the casting of Law Today, and this is one of the greater, nicer songs that I would like to have up there, but it's a pretty good song, so we'll go with that song, and so I'm going to bring that up now before I get into the message so that we can sing that song. Hmm, I believe it's this one here, yep. So I will minimize myself in a moment here.
wonderful, how wonderful, to sing from our heart. Oops. Stop it there. Oh, these songs are so wonderful, some of them. I could easily want to play another one there, but I will forbear. We will go into the Word of God now. I'm going to just bring myself back up. And uh, we will be into the Word of God here very shortly. And I know not what God is going to say by His Spirit. So I have everything back from Monday. I do want to touch on what I received throughout the week. And just allow things to just flow as the Lord would have it to, to be. And so, first of all, we have here that I received on, Isaiah, on Monday, Isaiah 23 and the Song of Solomon, chapter 1. And both of these chapters, by the casting of Lot, compare a nation to a female lover. One is Tyre, which is judged because of her pride due to her prosperity, and the other is the nation of Israel and the corporate body of Jesus Christ. The harlot city Tyre is even restored after 70 years of captivity and again commits fornication with the nations, but her prophets now go to meet the needs of God's people. The Song of Solomon reveals the intimate, pure relationship of Jesus Christ with his pure bride in Song of Solomon, chapter 1. So I, first of all, have here Isaiah 23 and a verse that stands out. So it says here, Who hath taken this counsel against Tyre, the crowning city whose merchants are princes and whose traffickers are the honorable of the earth. The Lord of hosts, which in the original would be Yahweh of hosts, hath purposed it to stain the pride of all glory and to bring into contempt all the honorable of the earth. Pass through thy land as a river, O daughter of Tarshish. There is no more strength. He stretched out his hand over the sea. He shook the kingdoms the Lord hath given a commandment against the merchant city to destroy the strongholds thereof. So we see in this passage of Scripture that God is disgusted with the pride of those peoples that have refused to acknowledge God in their lives and are all filled up with their own ego in what they have accomplished and are living with the drunkenness of their own pleasures so that they are desensitized to who God is and desensitized to the needs in the world and those around them. And so you eventually have conditions of great immorality and corruption that takes place over a period of time. And this is repeated over and over again throughout history. And it is then that these nations are destroyed usually by another nation. Or sometimes, like in the Genesis flood, you've got the worldwide flood, where God was grieved that he had, and mon, he had made man, and that there was such evil in his heart that he decided to wipe out everything and start over with a few people 
that we have that, that were left that had a relationship with him. Oh, I know you could, if you're an atheist or whatever, you could say, oh, well, why would God have, if he knows the end from the beginning, have allowed all these things? No. God does know the end from the beginning. He, he knows everything, but he allows free will because he's seeking a quality out of free will. So you see, free will is self-originating. Free will is the only way you have the capacity to love. God did not create us as robots. He created us with the capacity to love. Therefore, we are self-originating. And when we are self-originating, that means we are self-responsible for our choices. We are, in a sense, creating our own destiny all of our choices are like little miniature creations that God is looking at, and he's looking at that quality. Is What is the quality there? Is there a quality that is in conformity to life, that is constructive, or is there an anti-existing state of being that has taken place through our choices so that we take on a hell-contagious state of being that is destructive, that is the opposite of life? that is anti-existent and anti-life. You know, that is why there is a place of eternal torment. When you cut yourself off from the source of love, which is who God is, you're cutting yourself off from the very source of life because life comes out of love, the love of God. And so when you do that, what are you left with? You are left with torment that is worse than if you were nothing. It is anti-existent, anti-life, and it can go on forever. The most important thing God is looking for is your heart. Will you choose what is constructive unto life and be conformed unto what can go on forever in eternity by receiving his atoning sacrifice through Jesus Christ? And remember, in the very beginning, Adam and Eve, they all, they would take an innocent lamb and lay their hands on it, which is a symbol of their sin being transferred to that innocent lamb. And then it was slain on behalf of their sin. And Jesus Christ is called the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world by John the Baptist. With that understanding. And they recognized the animal couldn't forgive their sin. They realized that God was the source of forgiveness. But the animal could cleanse their physical being so that God's presence could dwell with their soul and spirit that dwelt in their body. Because Christ said in John 14, before he died on the cross, you know him for he dwells with you, but he shall be but he shall he dwells with you but he shall dwell in you in other words he will once the soul and spirit is able to be cleansed after the resurrection the very presence of god can imbue our soul and our spirit and so i have said all this because i want to get across the point of this message this message People were born again of the Spirit of God from the very beginning of time, from the very time of Adam and Eve. 
And I mean, explaining all that in detail I wouldn't do right now except to say that being brought forth anew by the Spirit of God involves your spirit, which is your capacity to worship, and your soul, which is your consciousness of who you are, includes mind and motion and will, but the main thing is it's the consciousness of who you are, the reality of your own consciousness. So if your soul is worshiping you, you're like a seed with a shell. And it takes a lot to get maybe that shell broken. It takes the softening of the water and the pressure of circumstances represented in the earth and so on. And then the light comes and that seed breaks open. And so it is. That when our pride is broken and we truly see our need of the mercy of God, we cry out from the depths of our being, meaning it with all our heart, and we say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And we, and we ask him to come into our lives. And that experience is where you experience being born again. And that has been happening from the very beginning of time. So this message is not just from the time of Christ on. It is a message that's been preached from the very beginning of time that God has such a moral quality of love that he could take judgment upon himself without violating the integrity of his love that requires judgment on the slightest that is contrary to his love. He could take judgment upon himself. In other words, that he has the power to forgive because of the perfection of his being to actually become a perfect atoning substitutionary sacrifice. And I could go into a lot more teaching on that. But if we're bare, because what I'm emphasizing here is pride. And being brought forth in you, the Spirit breaks the pride. There's the breaking of pride. Christ said, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of God. Because genuine belief in God is a choice to believe in who God really is in the two aspects of love that I describe. First, that he is holy, that he is totally without corruption, that he will not tolerate the slightest that is contrary to his love, which is this quality that always chooses the highest lasting good. And when you see that that is true and that therefore all the suffering that we focus, so easy to get focused on all the suffering in the world and how we're suffering and everything and say, if there's a God, why did he allow all of this stuff? How could there be a God? And so we, we get filled with unthankfulness and so on. But we forget that all of this suffering is because God cannot tolerate what is contrary to his love. It must be there, 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 what you reap, you sow. When you bounce off this ultimate reality in a negative way by rebelling against that love, it obviously goes in a destructive, corrupt chain of reaction. And so God has provided a way for us to be reconciled to him, to be forgiven, and that has always been the case from the very first people that existed on the earth, this message. And it is not only the message that I'm preaching now, but the message that shall be preached 
forever, even beyond this world in heaven. There will always be worshiping God because his love is so great and so perfect. And there's such fulfillment in worshiping God because he's the very source of love. He's the very source of beauty and of life. And there's nothing more fulfilling than worshiping God. Christ said to the woman at the well, but I will give you water that you drink of that you'll never thirst again. Well, I'm going to go on here and continue to read here. And I've got more on the um, city of Tyre. And I think I already explained this on the city of Tyre. So this is just the passage on that. So I want to go on to the Song of Solomon. And it says here, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Now this is a picture spiritually of God being married to his corporate bride upon the earth, which comes from every background into unity under the headship of Jesus Christ. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. You know, I have a little poem that sometimes I can say to people. I like when I go through the till or something, it depends on what they say. If they say, um, you know, how I'm doing, I might say, oh, I'm glowing and growing, knowing where I'm going. Or I might say, well, I'm fine, drinking heavenly wine. I need not wine. I found what's better than worldly wine. Why, even before my enemies, I can dine. And I could go on. The wine of this world is nothing. The pleasures of this world represented in wine are nothing compared to the love of God. Thy love is better than wine. There's another verse that says thy loving kindness is better than life itself better than life. Yes, it, when you know the love of God being birthed in your inner being by a spirit that is better than the wine of this world. Because of the savor of thy good ointments, thy name is as ointment poured forth. Therefore do the virgins love thee. The name of God Yahweh, the Almighty's in the Old Testament. When I say Almighty's, it's because often when you have the word in the English Bible, for example, the word Lord God often appears. The word Lord is Yahweh, and the word God in the original Hebrew is Elohim. And that word Elohim literally means Almighty's, referring obviously to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the name... If you look up the Hebrew meaning of the word name, Shem, it has the understanding of the reality of who someone is expressed towards someone else and is equated with the name for soul in the Hebrew, which is life. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And that has the understanding of the reality of who someone is in themselves or to themselves. 
The word name has the understanding of the very being of God in it, and that in that quality, which is this perfection of love I'm being, being described, is unlimited authority, power, and life. So thy name, which is love, is as ointment poured forth. Because ointment is soothing, it is healing. He is called also the healing balm of Gilead to heal the wounds and people's souls of the terrible things they've gone through. I think of what I said earlier about the broken cisterns that can hold no water. God spoke of Israel and Jeremiah and said, you have hewn out for yourselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. And those cracks in those cisterns that dissipate the life of God and leave you empty are wounds in your soul. And God can take the gold of his presence and fill those cracks up and take the things that have been such great contradictions of them in your life and make them into even more of something of the beauty of his creation, of his glory in your life, of fulfillment in your life, in ultimate destiny in heaven. So it says here, therefore those that are pure or the virgins love thee. Those, what does it say of those that are pure in the word of God? It says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. That's the perceiving of the eye of our heart, to perceive God. When we perceive the love of God, because we've chosen to genuinely fear God, which means we've chosen to genuinely believe in who God is in these two aspects of his being, or else you're believing an idolatrous perception of God and therefore of counterfeit God. When you choose to believe in God in these two aspects of his being of love, out of a pure heart, of, because you're living a pure life, you love God back because you're not controlled by the impurities of manipulative base that only give you temporal pleasures. You've come free of it. That doesn't mean that when you are born again of the Spirit that you don't have times and you can be deceived and fall prey to temporal things and temptations and so on, but you learn to come to God in repentance and genuinely mean it and Ask God to change you so that he takes those desires away, etc. And you become more and more transformed, more and more free, more and more into a deeper union of fellowship with God. So we read here. Draw me, we will run after thee. Lord, do you pray that? God, I want you to draw me. And I choose also to run after you, not to just, you know, be half-hearted in my love for you. I choose to give my whole life to you in devotion, to spend much time in prayer and in seeking you. Oh, this is a wonderful love relationship here. One can go on reading. And we read, the king hath brought me into his chambers, into the place of intimacy with God. We will be glad and rejoice in thee. 
we will remember thy love more than what wine, more than the loves of this world, the pleasures of this life. They no longer have a grasp to control us, to hypnotize us, to desensitize us. We come into union with the true and the living God, and there's nothing more fulfilling and satisfying than the wine that comes from the Spirit of God that is far greater than any earthly wine that never satisfies. The upright love thee. That's the pure in heart, those that are integral before God. And I could go on and I could go through this whole chapter and give you a wonderful message, but I will skip down to the other part that's in green here. It says, tell me, O thou, whom my soul loveth, where thou feedest, where thou makest thy flock to rest at noon. For why should I be as one that turneth aside by the flocks of thy companions? So this is representing the corporate bride and us as individuals being married to God. And, he's, and we're saying to God, Yahweh the Almighty, Jesus Christ, in whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwells. We're saying, tell me, O thou whom my soul loveth, I want to know where you feed, where you have fellowship, where you make your flock to rest in it. I want to be with others of like heart and mind that are in loving union with you. For why should I be as one that turneth aside by the flocks of thy companions? I don't want to be with those that aren't. I, I want you. I want to be married to you. I'm not in love with, I don't want. I want to be with you. This reminds me of Ruth that chose to be under Boaz and to humble herself and not and didn't feel worthy of anything. And yet, what a wonderful story of how she ended up becoming the wife of Boaz who was far older than her. And it's a picture of Christ in the church. If thou know not, I, I'm, I could go on. This is so wonderful to read all this. It says here, a bun bundle of myrrh is my well-beloved unto me. He shall lie all night betwixt my breasts. So this is again just speaking and typifying a relationship with the Creator. I want to go on to what I received by the casting of Lot. And so you got those two, uh, before I go into this second one, so there's the two pictures there. There's the marriage of Christ with his church in Solomon 1. And there's Tyre also. That God even had mercy on this city, though they didn't know God. And somehow used them. He judged them for the way they were caught up with the wines of the world and not giving. And in the end, after they'd been 70 years in captivity, they were changed to the point that they really believed it was important for them to supply the people of God with material needs. That's what it shares, shares here about Tyre. So God is merciful even to those that draw them in the right direction towards him. Now I want to go to 1 Samuel 22 and 2 John 1 that I received by the casting of Lot. These two chapters are in contrast to each other. 2 John emphasizes that we are to walk in the truth which dwells in us, which truth is who God is. To walk in the truth is to keep God's commandment to love God, 
with our whole being and to love one another as Christ loved us by laying down his physical life for us unto death so that we could be forgiven. Now, the other chapter is about Saul. Saul had totally self-seeking motives which were contrary to genuine love and therefore also to the truth. So we read this in 2 John 1, 7. For many deceivers are gone out, are, are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. It contains the following understanding. Deceivers are those that deny that God is so great that God could become a human being to not only communicate with his creation, but also live a perfect life and love union with God the Father without committing sin and become a perfect atoning sacrifice for our sins. And I go on here, and be corrupted in living out this life in the flesh and thus, and not be corrupted in living out this life in the flesh and thus rise from the dead victorious over sin and death. This is the ultimate perfection of love, which is the very source of all truth and life, and is the truth of who God is who dwells in us. So 1 John, 2 John 1.7 emphasizes the importance of us walking in the truth. And I don't know why I didn't actually put down the scripture here on 2 John 1.7, but suffice it to, to say that and that I'd been receiving this chapter in the last, uh, I think last week as well, on the importance of walking in the truth from 1 John. Or was it not 1 John? I think 2 John. And we know the story in um, 1 Samuel 22, 6-9. And so I just want to touch on it. When Saul heard that David was discovered and that the man that were with him and the man that were with him, now Saul abode in Gibeah under the tree in Ramah, having his spear in his hand and all his servants were standing about him. Then Saul said unto his servants that stood about him, Hear now, ye Benjamites, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? that all of you have conspired against me, and there is none that showeth me that my son hath made a league with the son of Jesse, and there is none of you that is sorry for me, or showeth unto me that my son hath stirred up my servant against me, to lie in wait as it is this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, which was set over the servants of Saul, and said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Amalek the son of Ahitub. So, here is an example of someone that's not walking in the truth. It's the opposite of walking in the truth. He's, he doesn't want to let go of his authority. Samuel the prophet told him because of his disobedience, he could no longer be king and would be removed. And yet he's holding on to all the glory he's receiving from people, all the comforts he's receiving as the king. Instead of humbling himself, and coming to the truth, 
He ignored the truth and held on to his own life and his own desires for self-glory and fulfillment in having all that power. And this is a good thing to see as we see it in the governments of the world and in institutions being corrupted. All of these people are being more and more threatened because there's people that don't want to go along with their agenda that will give all the glory and the power to them. And so they are threatened and they seek to take away people's well-being for the sake of their own temporal desire for gratification, self-glory, and fulfillment. And we see this corruption throughout the institutions of the world, the educational system, the medical system, the governments of the world, and we see this great uprising of freedom around the world. Today, Taiwan had an election. And the people that love freedom won. And if you watch The War Room with Steve Bannon, you can see that. Uh, report on that today because today is January the 13th and it was a tremendous victory but it's they're defying a tremendously powerful nation and they're willing to pay that price for freedom but then we have people that don't know the truth that are not walking in the truth and all they want is everything these few elite people to control everyone and everyone else to be a bunch of puppets and suffer. And that's what always happens with tyranny, with people that are corrupt. They cause the masses to suffer because they don't have a heart of love like Christ that laid down his life. He calls us to be walking in the love of God where we don't hold on to pride, but we humble ourselves before him. Even these things happen in the church. That over time, leadership that was originally raised up by the Spirit of God, that went through great trials, that lived the life, that had the demonstration and power of the Spirit is replaced by people that just get a mental understanding of the Bible from some seminary, but have never lived the walk. And soon, what do you have? You have a hierarchy that's insensitive to the head. And if people do not conform to the hierarchy and have their identity more on that hierarchy than in their relationship with God, they will stay part of that, but they will persecute those that have a true relationship with God in their midst to the point that there's a birthing out that happens from the mother's structure. And this is similar to corn growing, and it comes forth and forth and the shuck falls away and falls away, but eventually the corn is left glowing in the sun as the shuck ultimately falls away. And ultimately there is going to be in these last days the manifestation of the body of Christ, of the corporate pride of God upon the earth. As Christ prayed for John 17, in John 17, for this oneness to happen, as it's described in Ephesians 4, the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God. And in Acts 4.12, where it says, concerning Jesus Christ, whom the heavens must receive until the restitution of all things, which is speaking of this tremendous unity that will happen among those that genuinely know 
a relationship with God. They are coming forth and will come forth in congregations throughout the world in these last days. Now, I've written a book titled God, Headship, and Body Invasion, which you can purchase on Amazon as well. It's about 250-some-odd pages. It's a large six-by-nine paperback. You can get all of these books in digital, you know, Kindle, and put them on your phone or whatever. But that book shares what every, everything you can do in your local assembly so that you do not limit the fullness of the headship of Christ from inhabiting your local assembly in these last days. We need to come into a new order that will not limit the full habitation of God, the head, Yahweh, the Almighty's inhabiting your assembly in these last days. We need to repent of the loves of the world and the church, the gods of amusement that are condoned. All these things that people become desensitized and drunken with that keep us away from a loving relationship with him. That doesn't mean that you don't have liberty to do things here and there that you sense before God is okay to do. As long as those things do not become something that you become a slave to, as Paul the Apostle said, basically this is what he said. He said, you're free to do anything, but do not allow yourself to be brought under bondage by those things that you're free to do. Now, I don't mean anything by immorality, but anything in the sense, like, for example, some people have condemned me for doing physical workouts. Well, if I become obsessed with that, and I overdo it. I just do it for my health to keep myself in good shape so I can do more for the kingdom of God. I don't go and spend hours and hours every day doing workouts. I keep a balance. And if God calls me to a ministry where I can't do that, then fine. But I am going to live the, to, in everything. I seek to excel, to do my best unto the glory of God, not to be lazy. So we have here, we're to redeem the time because the days are evil. And then again, I got by the casting of the lot, second John. I wanted more understanding on what I got this day, and I got second John again, the very chapter I got the day before by the casting of lot. Again, it's an emphasis upon walking in the truth. I don't need to go into it in much detail, but let's just read a little bit. The elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all they that have known the truth, for the truth's sake which dwelleth in us, and the truth is God that dwelleth in us. Because the truth is another word for the word reality, if you look it up in dictionaries. And basically, reality is a definition of the word of who God is. He is the I am that I am, which basically means the ultimate reality. And what is not real is what is corrupt. What is not lasting is what is corrupt. But what is real is this love of who God is, his spirit dwelling in us, this reality of his presence dwelling in us that we experience as an invisible river of water flowing through us, as it were. I want to go on and share what I received on Wednesday. 
These two chapters are about putting off the affections and loves of the, this world and about putting on the righteousness of God in our lives. So we read here in Hosea, Rejoice not, O Israel, for joy is other people, for thou hast gone a-whoring from thy God. Thou hast loved a reward upon every corn floor. The floor and the winepress shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail in her. So God allows these things to happen because people have made those things their focus, their idol, their reason for living instead of a relationship with the living God where they can break through if they seek God with all their heart to know the wine of heaven that will satisfy far more than any earthly pleasure and will cause them to no longer find those earthly pleasures of any significance compared to the pleasure of experiencing a relationship with God and one another in the Spirit. We go on and we read in Hosea, The watchman of Ephraim was with my God, but the prophet is a snare of a fowler in all his ways, and hatred in the house of his God. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah, Therefore he will remember their iniquity. He will visit their sins. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first ripe in the fig tree at her first time. But they went to Baal Pur, which is an idolatrous idol god, and separated themselves unto that shame, and their abominations were according as they loved. And it goes on. And one could go on describing all this. And here's the solution in Hosea 10, the next chapter. God is calling them. He desires them to repent. And he says this, which is one of the tribes of Israel, Ephraim. And Ephraim is as an heifer that is taught and loveth to tread out the corn. But I passed over upon her fair neck. I will make Ephraim to ride. Judah shall plow and Jacob shall break his clods. Sow to yourselves in righteousness. Reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord or to seek Yahweh till he come and rain righteousness upon you. You have plowed wickedness. You have reaped iniquity. You have eaten the fruit of lies because thou hast, didst trust in thy way and the multitude of thy mighty men. We cannot even trust in military might. We must turn back to God and put our trust in him. And the secret is to break up the hardness of our heart, the fallow ground of our heart. And we break that up by learning to turn from the depths of our heart and to rend our heart, as the word of God says, and not our garment. To truly turn from our heart and humble ourselves under his mighty hand. And that is what God is saying to the body of Christ in these messages this week, as you will see as I continue on here. Now I could go on reading Colossians, which was just additional stuff, but I skip it for time. I want to go on to what I received the next day. On January the 11th, 2024, I received 2 Samuel 15 and Numbers 21, and both these chapters there is a poisoning that causes rebellion against God and the leadership God raised up. And also the people of God are throwing themselves 
at the mercy of God and repentance for the rebellion that brings them victory over their enemies about to destroy them. And that is exactly what we are facing now in the world. We are in a time that is the most dangerous time ever in the history of the world right now. With the possibility of war breaking out in Taiwan. With the war that's going on in Israel and it's spreading to other, a bigger conflict. With all the things that are happening with our freedoms being taken away and there being an overall uprising around the world against the oppressive tyranny that's taking place by people with great wealth that feel like they can control the masses and form their own one world government where they're controlling everyone and oppressing everyone. And they're so conceited and they pride, they look at us as just people that don't know very much and they're very, just like cattle. That's, that's their mindset out of their conceit and pride. And so we read here in 2 Samuel 15, 25 to 29, just this part in 25, and the king said unto Zadok, carry back the ark of God into the city. If I shall find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me again and show me both it and this habitation. But if he thus say, I have no delight in thee, behold, here I am. Let him do to me as seemeth good unto him. Now, this is the rebellion of Absalomon trying to overthrow King David as king. His son Absalomon was very subtle. He was very handsome with uh, one of them. It describes him as one of the most handsome people and very much continually telling people that he's going to do all these good things for him and David doesn't do any of this stuff. And so he caused a great rebellion to take place. He poisoned the people to buy his lies and to rebel against the one that King, King David, whom God had set up as king. And we go on and read here in 2 Samuel, and David went up. So David is now being forced to flee because they're going to come with a multitude of people and they would slaughter him and the whole works of them if they stayed in the city. And David therefore went up with haste. But look at the attitude of King David here in 2 Samuel 15.30. And David went up by the ascent of Mount Olivet and wept as he went up. He's not in pride and in anger and bitterness. He's weeping as he goes up and had his head covered and he went barefoot. He didn't have to go barefoot. And all the people that was with him covered every man his head. This is a sign of humility. And they went up weeping as they went up. They're in a heart of repentance. They are weeping. They are humbling themselves before God. Even in some self-mortification, they're deliberately walking on stones that are painful to walk on as they're ascending this mountain. In a heart of repentance over what has happened. Because King David is searching his heart and saying, God, this happened because somehow I was not sensitive to you and I allowed him to do these things and I didn't receive counsel from you. I didn't hear you because I was insensitive. And so he has an attitude of repentance. 
And so when he comes to the top of the mountain, King David worships God. He finds his refuge in God to bring him back. And indeed, he overthrew Solomon and was brought back to continue to be king. And the other thing that we had here that's similar to this is the account in Numbers 21. And here we read this. And when King Arad the Canaanite, which dwelt in the south, heard tell that Israel came by the way of the spies, then he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. That's happened today with Israel. And Israel vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, If thou wilt indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord hearkened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them in their cities. And he called the name of the place Hormah. Israel tended to not want to destroy all the things because they wanted the goods. They probably wanted the women and who knows what else. I don't know. But their tendency was to spare the enemy. It was always a problem that God wanted the enemy wiped out. Why? Because just like the worldwide flood, they had taken on an anti-existent, anti-life, destructive state of being, that would result in the destruction of the whole world if it was allowed to spread. But God spared the old world, the pre-flood world, which is very great scientific evidence for in many fields of science. Overwhelming so that you, one would know if they knew the evidence that it's not evolution. But anyhow, that's a side note. This here is something that reveals that when people are faced with impending judgment, they become desperate enough to be willing to be sacrificial and pay the price to please God. And we go on in Numbers 21, we see even more here that's eye-opening. And they journeyed from Mount Horeb by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom, and the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. So they've been walking and they're tired. And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water. Well, can you, pay, can you imagine yourself walking and being tired from walking so much through rugged wilderness, and you're not finding water and bread, and our soul loatheth this light bread. So it isn't that they didn't have food that sustained them. It was that they wanted really nice, tasty food. I'm sure they must have had water, but very little of it. So what do they do? They speak against God. Instead of humbling themselves under the mighty hand of God and saying, God, why are you allowing this? Help us, Father, we need you. Forgive us, Have and searching their hearts to see if there's any wicked way in them. They speak against God, and they speak against Moses. And so the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, 
we have sinned. You see, they were poisoned by the serpents. Because they were poisoned in their hearts, first of all, by buying into the complaining that some people did, and it spread like leaven. Certain ones were bitter and complaining, and they bought into that, and it spread like leaven. And so now there's this cancerous attitude towards the very creator of the universe. Instead of fearing God, they are speaking against God. And what is happening is God is therefore poisoning them as well with serpents to bring judgment upon them, to drive them to the place where they might repent. And so this is what happens. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent and set, upon, set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. And this is a picture of Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ even likened himself onto this picture, which I believe he mentioned somewhere in the gospel. And he's calling us today in the time of great trial and tribulation, not to get our focus on all the terrible things that are happening in the world and to start panicking and trusting in our own military might and resources. Yes, we need to do things to fight against corruption. I'm, yeah, we need to get out and vote. Yeah, we need to stand against the unfruitful works of darkness and reprove them and stand against them and block them in every possible way and defeat them. But in the context of putting our ultimate trust in God by turning to him and looking to him and having our focus on him, not our focus on all the terrible things that are about to happen in the world and us, but our focus on the fact that our destiny is far greater than anything in this world can provide. We are strangers and pilgrims in this world. He's calling us. And so we got more on here. And I don't know for time if I continue to read all of this. But in this last part of Numbers 21, because Israel repented, they had great victory over their enemies. And they're conquering them left and right and taking great amounts of territory. And indeed, God is trying to bring the nation of Israel right now, and indeed, many of them are turning to God. And may they fully turn to God and repent of anything where they fell away from God, that they might receive great victory and deliverance at this serious time. And the same is true. We see this terrible manifestation of evil around the world, of belief systems that are worse than the Nazis, being condoned, even being promoted because of the corruption that is in people do not recognize the terrible state of their own being and of those around them because they have not come to know the true and the living God. But we are here to give them the good news, to tell them about the love of God above all. And for us as churches to come together in this new order that will conquer our nations, 
with the gospel in these last days and bring in a great harvest. That is what God is calling his people to do. And I want to go on here. Friday, yesterday, I received Titus 3 and 1 Thessalonians 3. And there wasn't, yeah, in both chapters, there is an emphasis on having faith that endures and love that is displayed to the world. That's what both of these chapters emphasize. And yeah, there is a common theme there. And so I guess I'll read some of these verses, yeah. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Indeed, God is calling us to be those that increase and abound in love toward all people, and especially towards the body of Christ. And the fact that we do not love one another fervently with a pure heart is evident when we don't even have the desire for each member in the body to function in local assemblies, and it's all done at the front, mostly. Oh, a few people might be given permission to speak on the mic, and that's all you've got. You're not moving in that love, that overflow that results in each member of the body functioning. It should be facilitated in every church service. That the body is free to express their gifts of love towards one another that God has given them. And that's part of coming into this new order. We go on and we read in First Thessalonians 3, 4 to 7, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor be in vain. But now when Timotheus came from you unto us and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity, and that ye have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us, as we do we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over all, over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. And of course, the other passage I received was Titus. And again, there's an emphasis on love, except this is in relation to unity. This is a faithful saying. And these things I will that thou affirm constantly that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. This is something that is also very important. We should be praying and asking God to give us those opportunities to do good works before him. And then when we see them, to seize them. When we see people in need in front of us, if we ignore that, how does the love of God dwell in us? God brought someone into my life. Been a great trial in many ways. I had to learn a lot of patience. And I still am helping this person. But I get a deep satisfaction about how helping this person because they can't help themselves and they are so thankful that I do all these things for them. And so I, 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 I'm, I, I feel such a peace and a love from, it's a blessing that God gave me the opportunity to help a person in need near where I live like that that can't help themselves. And I did the same when my mom was alive. I lived with her in a rancher for 21 months, had to get up at two and four in the morning to clean up often a mess from being on the toilet. 
and it would take it took a big toll on me but it was a satisfaction and joy to do that but avoid foolish questions and genealogies and things that people use to out of pride to cause division it says a man that is an heretic the word heretic means opinionated one a person is opinionated is someone that is proud that is not humble themselves and doesn't know the mercy and the grace of God knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth he sins with pride and probably that pride leads him to many other sins yet they can be in your congregation just there to cause trouble by the enemy we need to be aware of these. He goes on in Titus and he says, put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to do every good work, to speak evil of no man, to lie, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men, for we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another, but after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward men appeared. And that's all I've got. Now, here we're up to today. So I want to share what I received today by the casting of Lot before God. The key verses. Both of these chapters strongly emphasize the very important quality of humility. In order to be in the grace of God, and so we read this in 1 Peter 5, beginning at 3. Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. I know many, I've been in many churches in my life. And I've seen leadership that is very dictatorial I have seen them hurt the sheep. I've seen other leadership that's very apologetic the other way. But the balance is that there's authority with humility in leadership. And both those aspects of being apologetic and not speaking with authority or the other way are not of God. Then it says, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder, yea, all, yea, all of you, be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. If we want the favor, the unmerited favor of the God's blessing in our lives, we walk in humility before God and before man, out of a pure heart not a fake humility. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, like King David did when he went up to that mountain, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. How important that is. And then we have this other chapter and it didn't get uh, pasted in there so I'll just reference it again okay first let's hold on here it was Zephaniah 3 yeah 
And so we have in Zephaniah, again, the very same thing coming out very strongly on humility. And this is also speaking of the last days. I have cut off the nations, their towers are desolate. I made their streets waste that none passeth by. Their cities are destroyed so that there is no man, that there is none inhabitant. I said, surely thou wilt fear me. Thou wilt receive instruction so their dwelling should not be cut off. Howsoever I punished them, but they rose early and corrupted all their doings. God has allowed great earthquakes. Sometimes the reason for these things is that people would turn to him as he's seeking here that they would. He makes it plain here. He allowed these things to happen so they would come to fear God and to turn to him. But then he says this, Therefore wait ye upon me, saith Yahweh, or the Lord, until the day that I rise up to the prey. For my determination is to gather the nations that I may assemble the kingdoms to pour upon them mine indignation because they're, they're rebelling more and more against God, becoming more proud and defiant against the Creator as we see now with idolatrous belief systems that are in rebellion against who God is. So he's assembling the kingdoms to pour upon them his indignation, even all his fierce anger, for all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. This is the last days. For then I will turn to the people of pure language that they may call upon the name of Yahweh, the ultimate reality, the I am that I am, to serve him with one consent. Jesus Christ said that he is the I am that I am. He is Yahweh, so is the Holy Spirit Yahweh, so is the Father Yahweh. One God, ruling in the three ultimate aspects of existence. But here is the key verse on humility that's coming up. This is speaking of the last days. It says, In that day shalt thou not be ashamed for all thy doings, wherein thou hast transgressed against me. For then I will take out of the midst of thee them that rejoice in thy pride, and thou shalt no more be haughty because of my holy mountain. <clears throat> so there are those that are going to be associated with the nation of Israel and love the idea that they're Christians or whatever and that they're with the elect people of God in the last days, but there's an element of elitism or pride. There's not humility in their relationship with God and with one another. And the fact that they don't have that relationship of a broken and a contrite heart and know what it is to break up the fall of ground, to walk and be clothed in humility, influences the nation of Israel towards pride. But there will be such humility in Israel in the last days that it says here that they will not be ashamed for all their doings in the sense that they will be, they will be repenting of all this and thinking all these people are looking at us and, oh, 
They must think we're so terrible. No, they don't worry about what people think. They don't mind humbling themselves because the pride is gone that is in their midst. And thou shalt no more be haughty because of my holy dwelling place. The word mountain represents government. The dwelling of God's presence and government in the midst of Israel. They're not haughty because of it anymore. Oh, we are the chosen people of God. No, they're walking in such humility. That's not in their heart. Any spirit of self-worship, of self-glory. I will also leave in the midst of thee an afflicted and poor people, and they shall trust in the name, in the being of Yahweh, with all of the power and authority that is in only that quality of being which is his name. The remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity, nor speak lies, neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Oh, how wonderful this is. And then I asked for further insight because I got done early, and I get another chapter that totally confirms this message in Ezra 10. Now when Ezra had prayed, and when he confessed, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, there assembled unto him out of Israel a very great congregation of men and women and children, for the people wept very sore. And when there's true repentance, there is weeping, there is humbling. When there's true sorrow and repentance over our sin, in this case Israel, had married into women that were worshiping idolatrous gods. And they had to divorce their wives, send them back to the heathen nations, even some that had children through them. They had to separate them so that that impurity would not contaminate the nation of Israel that was containing the messianic seed that would become Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. So that's the message. The overall message of this week is very clear. It is that God is calling his people to walk in truth and that when we walk in truth, that means we truly, truly, genuinely choose to fear God, which births in us humility and honesty. The humility drives us to honesty and transparency before God and one another, and the honesty drives us to humility before God and one another. And when we have this humility and we repent, God will bring great deliverances and his grace will be great upon us. And we will come into our destiny and fulfillment as individuals and as a corporate body if we heed what I am saying in this book and come into this new order where we make ourselves and our congregations his house of prayer and of holiness where we allow total freedom to move in the gifts of the spirit we don't have just short little meetings and you should have your meetings starting around one or two in the afternoon or even later so that people can come and prepare themselves properly to have a good solid four hours with God or three hours or whatever really come through with the presence of God. That's far better than having two short meetings. So much for this message. 
please support me by purchasing my books. You can find a link to them on my author's links on my website. So go straight to Amazon or you can purchase them on Amazon and um, would appreciate your help. Thank you for listening to this message. I am asking God to open doors so that I can begin to get this message out to the churches across Canada and the United States. So pray for open doors for me and for financial prisons provision so I can have a building to begin holding meetings in and to get this message out. God bless you all. Thank you.